the year, this is when people kind of decide, you know, generally what happens at the end of the year, especially for a nonprofit organization, folks go, they kind of decide, what are we going to do with our, we want to give some money, we want to be charitable in our donation. We know that uh, for every um, nonprofit organization, about 25%, which is kind of amazing, of their budget comes in during the month of December. And I know a lot of you are deciding what you want to do with whatever it is that you want to be generous with. And, you know, I've affirmed you already that you're a generous group of people. And I want to just kind of highlight a couple things as we kind of get to the year, the year end, which is this. There's basically four, four, four people in this room. Some of you have people who are like, I've never really given any money to anything, you know, like as a contribution. Anything. Maybe one time I texted, you know, something to the Red, you know, Red Cross during Katrina or something when, the, you know, the AT&T was doing that. Whatever, I get that. But what I want to give you a sense is like if you've never really seen what God does in terms of enlarging your heart by giving, I want you to consider what that might look like this year. And, which, I, you know, if you've been with us before, you know I've said this before, and I really do sincerely mean this. If you're like, I get it, this is the year in thing, now you're going to try and push me to give to your dumb organization, which I don't trust, it still has a pole in the middle of the room. <laughs> okay, we're still friends. Um, but if you're looking at it going, I'm just, you're, this is all a big ploy, I just want to let you know really quickly. If you don't think that we're going to deliver on what God has sort of, you know, ignited in you or what you believe about our mission of our church, then I really do sincerely believe this. Give somewhere else that you think is having a greater impact in the world and in the community and see what God does in your own heart. But don't let this season go by as one in which you don't contribute to something that's beyond yourself, to which you release yourself from being controlled by your money a little bit and go, I'm giving some of it away and I lose control of it. I give it to some other organization. Now, do I think that you should give it to the church? Yes, absolutely, you should. But that's up to you. And we talk about it all the time. We never want anything we talk about giving to be out of obligation or fear or intimidation or anything like that. So if you're a person who's like, I've never given anything, consider what it might look like this year. Maybe God has done something in your life being a part of our church community. Maybe there's some other things God's inviting you into. So consider that. Second group of people is people who give. You give kind of like you give sort of sporadically. Like every time there's a need, you kind of jump to it, you give to it, and that's, this is great. What I want to encourage you to do is consider in this next year, consider maybe moving to a more regular kind of giving. As you look at from now on into the next year, you go, you know what, what would it look like for us as a family to set aside part of our budget to make this part of what we do? Maybe just more regular. Some of you already give regularly. You're in a situation where you've made a decision in your life to live differently so that you can be someone who's giving generously on an ongoing basis. And, I, you know, that's, that's like, that's a pretty courageous thing where you're going, we could live differently than we do now, but we're choosing to live differently to give money away. I mean, that's a pretty big deal. And the last group is this. There are some of you in this room who have already chosen to live differently. You've budgeted this way to give generously. And there's a part of you that's like already giving sacrificially, that it's like we're giving above and beyond. We're looking at our, our finances and we go, we can give this much. And you're actually literally saying, we're going to carve out even more that it actually, it, we feel it even more so. Kind of in keeping with the biblical sort of idea of sacrifice. And for those, that's the four people in here. For those of you, I just want to say great job that are in that, that place. But consider what God's inviting you into in this season as we kind of close out our year and look into that stuff. You got a special bulletin, which just says year in giving on it. If there's something maybe we just... If there's something you want to think about, there are offering boxes in the back. Again, you can always do your giving online and stuff like that. You can see that as well. But um, it's just what's God saying to you about, about this year end as it wraps up, as we get closer to Christmas and being sort of the generous, grateful people that you are. So consider those things. We got great stuff happening in this, in this next couple of weeks. I'm excited that you get to be here. You know, one of the great things for me, obviously, in that is, um, is our tree lighting. It's one of the great things to celebrate. It's a great opportunity to bring friends as you're such an inviting community of people. So consider what that looks like. As we uh, consider actually continue actually in our second week of Advent, last week we had um, one of my 
one of the people I fear because he's so incredibly like super buff. A guy named Wes who was here last week. He's you know Simone guy who is like. You just don't want to look. And the thing is, he's like the gentlest guy in the whole world, but he's just amazing. You know, so I'm always like, I'm always like threatening to fight him, you know. Then he looks at me and I go, I was just kidding. I was just, I was totally kidding, Wes. Um, But gosh, he's such a gifted teacher and he's such a fun guy. And so we started last week with the idea of hope uh, in the Advent season. Now, Advent, as we talk about Christmas, as you can see now I'm transitioning. Advent is just a, comes from a Latin word, Adventus, which means arrival. And all that it really, all that Advent is pointing to is the arrival of Jesus. It's the expectation of the arrival of Jesus. Now, in the first century, there's a hope and a longing for the world. There's a belief about what could happen. There's this expectation for God's people, after they've had years and years and years of suffering, that there would be a person who would show up who would, to use the biblical word, would deliver them from their captivity into freedom. And the hope was that a person... uh, you know, this guy named God's Messiah would show up, this anointed person would show up and deliver the people into this new freedom. And I think for a lot of us, as we look at the Bible, more often than not, especially if you're, you're new maybe to church or to Jesus or whatever else that might look like, and incidentally, I didn't say this at the beginning too, if you are new, you know, we are a group of people who believe. In fact, I've had people tell me, the reason why I keep coming to your church is because you actually believe this thing I'm about to say, which is this. We actually believe we don't have all the answers. We don't have everything figured out. We do believe, however, that we are on a journey which involves following Jesus because we believe something about the, the meaning of our whole lives has, revolves around him. And that we want to figure out what it looks like to follow him and love other people is what we talk about. But if you're new with us, more than likely, if you're new to church, more than likely, when you read the Bible, you go, yeah, 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 I get, the, I get that there's some stuff that happened to them, but our world is so different. And what I just want to point out really quickly as we look at the Bible, the people are longing for a world that would experience a peace that they have been longing for. To look at our world in the past week, we can say the world is still looking for a peace. So in some ways, we're no really different than in the first century. So as we consider what it might look like to consider this idea of peace um, in Advent, let's pray and then we'll see what God has for us as we consider taking another step toward Christmas. Jesus, as we look at this, as we look at our world, we're forced into uh, asking ourselves a question about the world, which is this. It's a very humbling question, Father. It's this one that just says, what's wrong with us? Why do we keep doing this? Why is this our reality? The world needs peace. That we, can, we can identify there are things in the world that are suffering that have gone wrong, that have gone haywire. And we want to ask the question in all seriousness, not only what's wrong with the world, but also for really, really honest, what's wrong with us? There's parts of us, Father, that are warring against peace. There's parts of our family and in our life and in our work in which we feel a conflict. Jesus, I'm reminded of the scripture in Psalm 139. It says this, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there is any hurtful way within me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Jesus, that's our prayer, at least for a moment. We have experienced the no conflict. Sometimes we're the author of conflict, sometimes we're the recipient, sometimes we're the innocent bystander of conflict. But Jesus, for now, for just a moment in the stillness, would you search our own hearts for the anxious thoughts, for the hurtful way. May you lead us out of it, Jesus. Father, we want to walk in a way that is everlasting, that is full of life, 
Help us today, Jesus, to, to discover a new, fresh understanding of peace, a way in which we might live in fullness and in life. In your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. Came in, you did get a bulletin on whatever side you're looking at, depending on, you know, front or back. On one side of the outline, there is a little bit of an outline. You can follow along there. If you want to follow along in your Bible, we're going to be um, primarily in Genesis 15. Um, we'll be in some other places as well, but that's where we'll spend a lot of our time. Um, if you don't have either of those things, you don't have a Bible, you don't even, you're not sure you like the Bible or whatever else it is, great. Everything you could need will be up on this screen right here in just a moment. So don't worry about that. Also, one more quick warning. Today as we talk about this message... This is one of those where you're going to be thinking to yourself, oh no, oh no, he flew off the rails. We don't know where he's going to go with this thing. This is a big giant nightmare. I'm so bummed I brought my friend today because this is not what we, I promise he doesn't usually do this. I know this is going to be that moment for you guys. But here's what I want you to capture. You're going to have to trust me. You're going to get to a point where you're going to go, I don't think he can bring it back. And as promised, I will commit to you that I will, in fact, indeed land the plane which you will be wondering, how much longer can we circle the airport? Trust me, I'll land the plane. All right, you with me? So when you have doubt, you're going to go, I, I remember what he said and I trust him, okay? All right, cool? Cool. Okay, here we go. Um, let's start with this. There's, there's, this um, there's this passage, when you, can't, you can't get really to Christmas without getting into this verse, this passage from Isaiah chapter 9. It's one of the most famous sort of Christmas uh, prophecies, and you get this picture. For, for unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Now, when we start talking about peace, most of the time our Christmas kind of peace prayer looks about like this. Please, God, please, God, let us get through this year. I know we have to, you know, there's going to be people that are, you're, they're in your family. By the way, just show of hands. I'm not asking you to, maybe they're with you, so <laughs> bear with me, you know, it's okay. But how many of you have, have someone in your family who inevitably and in all circumstances when everybody gathers always makes it weird? Whatever it is, they always make it weird. You're like, oh gosh, did that person say that again? <sighs> cool. Um, I think the, in the old English people would say, let's have a cup of cheer, which just meant... We need something with a little bit extra in it because we got to deal with this. That's generally how they would say it in the old things. But you have this sense there's someone in your family who makes it weird. And there's a part of you that is like kind of holding your breath. <laughs> like, okay, we've got Christmas. Let's just, everybody, pull it together, right? And our impression of peace really is about survival. It's about holding our breath and making it through. And I see a lot of you nodding like, yep, every year, that's my prayer. God, I just want the peace. I just don't want there to be a crazy amount of conflict. I don't want there to be any confrontation. I get that that's what you might think. I just want you to understand as we continue moving forward down this conversation about peace, you have to understand something's really, really important for us to understand. It's this. Peace and perseverance are not the same thing. <laughs> There's a groan. I just heard that like, oh, no. Because most of the time we talk about peace, we're just praying that we make it through. And that's not really the peace God is hoping for us or desiring for us or the peace that God intends for us. Most of us are longing for a peace that looks like perseverance. And that's not big enough. There's that person, you know, that person who makes it weird <laughs> at your family. Whoever that is, uncle, aunt, cousin, whatever. Some family neighbor who you kind of called the uncle but you don't know why. That person always shows up. Those people... You know, you're praying, you actually, your prayer might even look more deliberate. It might be more like, God, I just pray for the sake of all things good. That person would just get a flat tire on the way to Christmas this year <laughs> as we're hosting them. 
And you know what their prayer is to you? Dear God, I pray that I get a flat tire and don't have to go to Christmas to be with those people. I mean, they think the same thing. They make, you make it weird for them as well. But maybe there's something more to biblical peace than simply surviving stuff. And the way I want to frame that up for you is a little, I want us to give us just kind of an understanding or a, a definition to work with as we approach Christmas, as we consider all of what this means. Now, I'm going to give you a word picture. We're going to work out of it. And again, you're going to be thinking, where are you going? And just, you're with me. Okay. But you're a smart group. You're a nine o'clock group. You're, you're sharp. You had coffee. You applauded the coffee people. Once the coffee hit you, you were like, oh yeah, it's good. Okay. My family, um, around Christmas, I'm sure maybe some of you do this as well. I don't know why it's a Christmas. Maybe because it's colder. You know, it dips from a, you know, it dips from 78 to 72. And we're like, ooh, scarf time. You know, and we get our, <laughs> you, get a, you get a puzzle. You guys do puzzles in your house. You know, you have sort of people who get puzzles together. And I'm not a puzzle person, as it were. I'm not like, man, I really, I can't wait for puzzle time. But, you know, inevitably there's a picture of like some, you know, golden retrievers, you know, tackling Santa Claus or there's a cat and, you know, hanging from a stocking over a fireplace or whatever it is. And we all, inevitably, there'll be like a card table, there'll be a little light and there'll be the puzzle. Now in my family, my Amanda, and I, I don't, I was trying to figure out how to say this without sort of making her look not so great and I don't know how else to do I'm going to do the best I can. <laughs> Let me just put it this way. She is very dedicated to seeing things come to completion. With me? She inherited this trait from her parents, and when we have this, we have a puzzle out, it becomes the obsession of our family. And it's so much so that it is like hours will go by where the addictive little click of a puzzle piece going into the, like that little tiny piece where you're like, and you, for me, again, not addicted to puzzles, don't think to myself this is the great joy of Christmas. When I get there and I'm like, I'll sit with you guys for a second, and I find a piece, especially if you find one like within a minute or two. Where you look at everybody else like, how hard is this? And then the next one takes about 20 minutes. But that little sensation is like, oh, just one more of those, right? And you're like, stop, stop, I can't have to get away from this thing. And Amanda, I am not exaggerating, guys. There's been times where I've come home and I've gone, Amanda, where are the kids? I don't know. <laughs> like, you don't know? Well, I hear them. I mean, they're somewhere. And I go, okay, well, um, did they eat dinner? No. She'll tell you. She'll be here next service. You have, she'll be like, no, they didn't eat dinner. I'm like, well, were you just sitting here all, all day? Did you eat anything today? No. I didn't. Just looking at me like this is the whole thing. The whole day has been spent trying to, fill the, to finish up the end of this thing. And we're going to go. On the, December 25th, I get on a plane. And I fly to Bainbridge Island, which is outside of Seattle, which is like, just to give you a sense of how wonderful this place is. Um, it's great. See, it's wonderful and beautiful, but I have to tell you, it's the mo it is the most depressing place. The next great American novel will be written in Bainbridge Island. It's always misty and foggy and sleeting, whatever sleet is. You've never seen sleet unless you've never lived here. But it's like, it's like, it's like an icy machine is falling from the sky. It's gross. And it's like, this is what it's like. And I guarantee there'll be a puzzle. And we'll be sitting there. And I'll have to fend for the children because no one else will advocate for them in my house. Now, the most frustrating thing about a puzzle isn't when all the pieces are in their chaotic beginnings. Everybody's flipping them over and kind of anticipating putting the puzzle together. It's because I live in a house that has three children and a labradoodle in which inevitably that puzzle, that, that table will get bumped and pieces will fall off. And, of course, the back, you know, cardboard color is a very neutral kind of tannish color, just like our carpet. And there will be a piece missing. It doesn't matter if you can see the whole picture, if you can tell the golden retrievers are tackling Santa Claus, or there's a cat in a snowstorm, or whatever else, it, a cat in a snowstorm, that sounds kind of depressing. <laughs> That's how I feel when I go to Bainbridge Island. Um, 
But whatever the, you can tell what the picture is, but the thing that's absolutely unnerving is that there is one thing, there's just one part of it missing. You can see the table underneath it. And of course, obnoxious people come to your house and they're like, hey, you know what, looks pretty good. You know you're missing a piece? Oh, you made it weird. You're that guy. That's the person. There is always something wrong. The ultimate frustration is when there is a single missing thing. When something is missing, then the whole thing is off. The biblical understanding of, of peace, it's a, it's a word you might have heard of, it's the word shalom. I want to give you a sense of the way in which that, that, that word actually has a different kind of sense than just sort of saying the absence of conflict or making it through conflict. It's this. It's that nothing is broken. Nothing is missing. There's a wholeness and a harmony. When we're talking about peace, this is God's intention for peace for us. Not simply that we would make it through stuff. Not that perseverance is a bad thing. That's a really great thing. But it's not peace. Peace is about nothing broken, nothing missing, wholeness, and harmony. Now this really is what everybody's looking for in the world. Whether or not they know it, this is what everybody is looking for. If you're someone who, you know, was brought here today and you're like, well, I'm not sure about church or Jesus or whatever. The truth of the matter is, regardless of what you believe, whatever is not fully whole within you, whatever is not at harmony within you, you are trying with whatever means you have to make a wholeness about yourself. Everybody in the world is trying to make themselves whole, to be, another word to say it is to be integrated. This is why people consistently jump from boyfriends and girlfriends and relationship to relationship because there is a brokenness within them that they're trying to make whole. This is the reason why people are constantly even questioning, even people who are married are going, I'm looking at my spouse now and I'm going, well, they're probably not the right one, so i got to go maybe consider finding another one because there's a brokenness. Some people will pursue a perfect physical form, perfect physique, hoping to mend a brokenness within them to find some way in which they might feel whole or put together well. Other people are looking for the right career and so on and so forth. Everybody is searching for wholeness. We're trying to figure out how to mend the brokenness of our lives. Isn't this really the cry of our world? To put ourselves together. People often say, you know, I'm not really a, I'm not really a church person, I'm not really a religious person, but I'm a spiritual person. That's simply a way of saying, I don't know, the, whatever, and I actually, in some ways I can admire this, whatever the world has got to offer me about how I could be whole, it isn't working. And so I'm just seeking a way to be made whole, and the only way I know how is to find it through different vague spiritualities. The peace, the prince of peace that Isaiah is talking about isn't the bringer of perseverance. It's the bringer of wholeness, of shalom, of restoration. Now, that everybody wants peace is not shocking. That's not a surprising thing at all. You know, in the, the ancient Near East, this idea of a, a, the, the bringer of peace would be the way the peace was always brought was that there was always power associated with it. In other words, in Rome, you have a Caesar who brings about his, what was famously known as the Pax Romana, the, the peace of Rome. The way in which that peace came about is because Rome's army was bigger and stronger than everybody else. And they just bulldozed everybody else. And anybody else who kind of popped up with a, with a revolution, they were just immediately mowed down. And it was like, peace, everybody, peace. In fact, even the announcement about a Caesar's birth, when, whenever there was a new Caesar born, the announcement went out to the world and it sounded like this, see if this sounds familiar, a son of God, savior, <laughs> prince of peace. Those are announcements about Caesar too. 
And his method of peace was always about bully. If you're in the ancient world, however you could associate yourself with the biggest bully, which meant you got his brand of peace for your people. And people who were bullied always envisioned themselves raising up a bigger bully to conquer that person. And you have to imagine now, as, as we get closer and closer to Christmas, the arrival of this person, this bringer of peace, people are longing for someone who would be a bigger bully than Rome or a bigger bully than everybody else who would bring peace. Or maybe there's a different kind of peace the Bible speaks about. The kind of peace that the Bible speaks about is about, first and foremost, of all the peace kind of variations there could be, is about a restoration of wholeness between, between God and people. In other words, that the primary brokenness of all people is their broken relationship with God. And his intention to restore peace begins and ends with his ability or his intention to restore people to himself. In fact, you could trace the whole Bible just under the umbrella of the word shalom. You could say God started and established shalom. That shalom was then broken by people. And the rest of the Bible is about God restoring shalom between himself and people and creation. Now the God of the, of the Hebrew people is unique in the ancient world. He says these kinds of things. Some of you are going, where are we going? Stay with me. He says things like this. I'll be their God and they'll be my people. And I will make my home among them. Remember that God's aim is to try to restore the peace, the, the wholeness that has been broken between human beings and himself. And he'll say, my, what I, my, my desire is that I would dwell among them. Because the God of the Hebrew people is not distant like the other gods. He isn't just saying, I'm far away and you're down there. What he keeps saying is, it's my intention to dwell among you so long as you want me to be there. I want to be among you guys. You're my people. And the belief always is that when God is with his people, there's prosperity and health and shalom. And the way in which that whole being with, God being with his people, the way that that thing is characterized is by one word that shows up every so often in the Bible. And you see it and you kind of, we don't really have an equivalent for it in our present day. There isn't, there isn't an alternative to make it clearer to understand. It's just this one word that describes this relationship, the way that the relationship between people and God is governed. It's this word, covenant. Different than a contract. It's sort of like um, if a contract is formal between parties who may or may not care about each other, and if anybody breaks their end of it, you know, then it's kind of the, the contract is void. That's a, that's a contract. And if most relationships are governed without any kind of agreement, just sort of an understanding, this is kind of in the middle of both of those things. There's some formalness added to an already existing, really beautiful relational component that makes it a little bit more... I guess formal solid is the best way to say it. And God is constantly throughout the biblical narrative forming and initiating covenants between himself and his people. In fact, when you look at the, it's sort of a sacred pact between people and God. And in every, in every covenant, there are promises, there are terms, there are curses, and there are blessings. Now, at the time of Jesus, people are longing for the God who sets and establishes covenants to come into the world. There is a prophecy <clears throat> before Jesus, famously, this is one about, even talks about sort of the lead up to Jesus from Malachi. It says this, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking, remember people are wanting God to rescue, him, rescue them, will come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant. This is the same thing. This is the Messiah who is talking about Jesus. Whom you desire will come, says the Lord God Almighty. Now, everybody's hoping for this person to come to bring about his rescue. This messenger of the covenant, the one who is the bringer of God's promises, the bringer of God's shalom. Now, when you read in the Bible, 
when you read in the Bible, you read, if you read some of these covenants, if you've ever done this before, it's a little bit troubling. Because you get all these promises that sound awesome about what God intends to do, all these blessings, and then you get this, if you do this, you get this, but if you don't, and it sounds a little worrisome. You're like, whoa, whoa. What happens when people don't stick to their end of the bargain? And all of a sudden you get God being pretty, you go like, well, God's pretty serious about people staying in their covenants. And you wonder for a moment, what happens to people who don't stick with God's covenant agreement? But if you're really looking at the Bible and you're really kind of considering what your life might mean in it, what the question you really start wondering is, I wonder what happens when I don't follow through on the covenants with God. What happens then? In fact, I would say this is a, a, not a good way to read the Bible, but you could actually read the Bible as saying it's simply a picture of God's people letting God down. Well, there are those people, again, they just continually let God down. All they do, God says these things, people let him down, and he gets kind of upset about it, and then they, they, either, they either run away from God, or he kind of says, if you want me back, I'll come back, but you guys are kind of on your own until you want me. I mean, it's kind of a sad picture, but maybe there's another way to look at it. Maybe as you look at the Bible, there's another way to consider it. It's that God is chasing his people, to, he's constantly chasing his people to bring them back to him. That isn't just simply a picture of people letting God down. Maybe there's something that we ought to look at when we consider a covenant. Because God's people are running away and God's going, I'm going to figure out how to get them back to me. They need to know that they need me because I'm their God. Now the story you get, I just want to focus on one covenant in particular. There's a story you get. It's in Genesis. It's, uh, it starts actually in Genesis, actually the story starts in Genesis 11, but it really kind of takes its first big step in Genesis 12. There's a guy named Abraham. Abraham's a guy who has been told by God to go to leave from one place where he has lived uh, and go to another place. God says, I'm going to bless you. He says, I'm going to be with you. Anybody who's your enemy, I'll make my enemy. You're my guy. And you're going to have descendants. You're going to have descendants like the stars in the sky. And Abraham is like, this is great. This is, I like this. Because not only is God going to give him a land, he's going to give him descendants. Which there is no greater blessing in the ancient world than to have lots of kids, particularly male kids, and lots of land. That is the ultimate blessing. And God's saying, I'm going to give you these things. Now, as Abraham's getting older and older in age, in fact, at one point he kind of points out to God, hey, God, I'm like 90-something. <laughs> what do you, you know, you keep telling me I'm going to have kids. I don't have a kid. To which, um, if, if, is anybody here 90? Okay, I'm just kidding. Um, if I asked any of you who were approaching 90 years old and said, here's the news, you're going to have a child. You're going to have a tiny baby in your house. <laughs> All of you just did what Abraham did, which is laugh. Which is why he names his first son, Laughter, Isaac. Now, this is the promise given to this guy. In fact, here's what it says. All peoples on earth will be blessed through you. This is the initiation of God's covenant with this guy named Abraham. Which at this point his name is just Abram. Let me jump ahead a little bit. Now, as you see this, here's what this means. Abraham starts saying, what about that promise? Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him as righteousness. This right here is Abraham's being told. You're going to have kids as numerous as the stars in the sky. He also said to him, I'm the Lord who brought you out of, out of Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to take possession of it. But Abram said, Sovereign Lord, how can I know that I will gain possession of it? In other words, we've got to enter into some kind of agreement. This is the initiation of a contract, or a, not a contract, a covenant. Now, uh, here's what it says in verse 9. <clears throat> so the Lord said to him, bring me a heifer, a goat, and a ram, each three years old, along with a dove and a young pigeon. Notice at this point, there is no instruction except bring me these animals. But look what Abraham does. So Abram brought all, the, all these to him and cut them in two and arranged the halves opposite each other. The birds, however, he did not cut in half. Okay, just a real peaceful Christmas image I want you to imagine for a second here, okay? 
you have to, you have to imagine what this, the cake. So I, it's gruesome on purpose, so just bear with me, okay? I know it's really gross, and I just need you to hang with me. Abram goes to find these animals, and then he, <laughs> and then he has to hack them in half. So you can imagine people are like walking by. Now, truthfully, everybody else in the ancient world would have known what was happening had they seen this happen. We would have been like, oh, my gosh. This is the most horrifying thing I've ever seen. Because it is. I mean, he's got a, this is a cow. He has to cut a cow in half. And a goat and a ram. And he's like, you know what, by the time he gets to the birds, he's like, they're fine. I'm not going to cut them in half. I mean, I guess, no. But he has, the, there is this ginormous, bloody mess. And everybody in the ancient world would have known what's happening here. There would have been no doubt in their mind. What they would have said is, there is this thing happening, which is the way in which people form covenants. You're like, that's the way they did it? This is, this is horrifying. Can't they just sign the paper or something? Okay. There is all of this blood now. Now, here's the way the covenants worked. And I'll give you even a little bit more specific. Among a party, a lesser and a greater party, which is called a lord and a vassal. So the vassal is the lower party and the lord is the superior party. What always would happen is this. The parties would make this, this sort of blood display. The lower, the inferior person would stand outside of this display and then the superior person would call that person to stand in the middle of this gory depiction of, of blood. So they'd walk forward and stand there. And then the, the superior person would come forward to meet them in it. And then they would make the pact. And in essence, what they're saying is, as they make the pact, may this happen to me should I not hold up my end of the bargain. May I be torn to pieces if I do not live up to my end of this agreement. To which the... the um, the superior person makes the same understanding with a person of a lower. So usually this is like, you know, a, a, um, the contract would be or the covenant would be between like a, a landowner and someone who would work on his farm. This, this would be a promise to take care of family and all kinds of stuff so long as you work for me and all my land and all that kind of stuff. Now, Abram has understood what God is intending, which is to enter into a covenant with him. Now notice what happens next. When the sun had set and darkness had fallen, a smoking fire pot with a blazing torch appeared and passed between the pieces. Now, whenever you see a blazing torch or fire, almost always, the way, with, especially the words like blazing in the Bible, you, that's really a depiction of God's presence. It's a depiction, a depiction of God moving in some capacity. No, you have this fire pot moving through the things. Verse 18, on that day the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and, or Abram and said, to your descendants I give this land from the, from the wadi of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. Now, Here's what I want you to see. Some of you are like, I don't get why that's a big deal. Because it is confusing because we don't enter into covenants like that. Imagine if that's how your marriage was sealed. Hey, we're going to have a great party. We're going to slay a, half, a heifer and we're going to stand in the middle and splash around and it'll be great. Okay, we don't do that. <laughs> if you do, we have other issues we have to talk to you about. God passes through this incredibly gruesome display while Abraham is waiting there. Which means God affirms the covenant... That's being made between the two of them. And he says, he says, I am taking on both sides of this agreement, not you. Not only is God promising to bless Abraham, he's also promising, on, even if Abraham doesn't do his part, to still bless him. But let me tell you, in other words, what this means. God's saying, may I be torn to pieces if I don't uphold my end of the promised agreement because he's entered into, these, into this covenant cut you know, display. But he's also saying this, may I be torn to pieces if you don't hold up your end of this promised agreement. God is saying, I got both sides of it. Whether or not you decide you want to do this, I got both sides of it. The blessing is yours and the curse is mine no matter what. It is God's intention to make a covenant 
peace with you. With you. Already what you see in this whole conversation, what you see in Genesis 15, you see that God is going to own both sides of it. In other words, what God wants for us is to be made whole. Not because we do everything right. If the covenant with Abraham tells us anything, it's that God knows we're not going to get it all right. So he's going to take it on himself. May I be torn to pieces even if you don't hold up your end of the agreement. We come from families and where there's brokenness and there's, there's issues where we have to feel like, some of you come from families where you feel like you're constantly having to earn and to prove that you belong there. Some of you have been told that there's such a demand on your performance that you can barely live in it any longer. Others of you live in a family where because you're expected to do everything perfect, you live in a family where you're also expected to pretend when you're not, which makes us unwhole, which causes us a lack of that shalom that God intends for us to have. It's amazing to me how many people, whether or not they have ever had an encounter with Jesus or they've been walking with him forever, it's amazing to me how many people say, these words, I feel like I've let God down. There are people who won't even come into the church, who have no experience with Jesus whatsoever, who just go, I feel like I've let God down, I can't go. Let me just tell you, and this is a little bit goofy to say it this way, but it's the best way to say it. If you feel like you have let God down, let me explain something to you. You were never intended to hold him up. You were never intended to hold him up. For some of you, that is all you needed to hear at Christmas. This whole Christmas is all you needed. You were never intended to hold him up. Now, a couple weeks ago, some of you guys knew I was in Israel. And I'm, I'm, we we're, wandering, we're you know, looking at all these you know, incredibly cool ancient sites and we're learning all this stuff and we're walking through some stuff. And one of the places you stop is the, the literal place where um, Pontius Pilate this is, the, this is the Roman governor who was presiding over Jesus, you know, the Israel at the time of Jesus' death. And he actually interviewed, he has an interrogation with Jesus. It goes back and forth with Jesus. I think it's in John 18, but you can read it. And they're going back and forth having this conversation. It's a place where Jesus, ultimately Pilate isn't sure what to do with him, but he decides, all right, well, at least we got to beat this guy. So this is the place where Jesus' flesh is torn and ripped apart. May I be torn to pieces if I don't hold up my end of the agreement is what you're seeing right here at this moment. Jesus, God's own person, the messenger of the covenant is torn to pieces. Now, what's surprising about this moment, there's all kinds of stuff. People, it's emotional and it's quiet in this place and there's still people talking but you just, because of other tour groups or whatever, but you kind of get this like solemnness about this place. And what's so surprising isn't just the place or that it happened or whatever else, it's that people are struck with a very, very striking reality. It's a, it's a it's a powerful reality, which is this. You were worth it. You were worth it. You were worth it for God to come as a human being and to be torn to pieces. You were worth it. And you are worth it. And you will always be worth it. God's intention was to bring about a wholeness to you that you could not bring about on your own. And you were worth it. 
And you are worth it. And you will always be worth it. God makes peace by his power and not by your perfection. Paul, the apostle Paul will say it this way about Jesus. He'll say it this way. Christ redeemed, which is just simply a way of saying set free, redeemed us from the curse of the law. Remember, there are curses and there are blessings. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The apostle Peter will say it this way in his letter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. Everything that God, all of the, all of the covenant promises and the curses are, are fulfilled in Jesus. He takes on both things that we might live. God keeps his promise. God keeps what he says for us. He would make us whole. Now, some of you, all you needed to hear was you were worth it. That's all you needed to hear. You could have, that could have been everything. The whole message could have been you were worth it. God's intention in the covenant relationship of peace is the one in which he builds peace between his people and himself at every cost to himself to make it so. Now, that's a peace now that's for us and it's also through us because we're about to go into a whole bunch of family stuff. You are. We all are. There's this, whatever God intends for us individually, God intends for us to share corporately. So this reception of this kind of peace is for us to give to other people as well. What does that look like? That person who makes it weird, and sometimes those people who don't just make it weird, but who are supposed to love us in our past, who didn't do a good job, and who are presently not doing a good job of loving us the way that they're supposed to do so. What does it look like? How do we make peace? What we know is that the way to peace, if there's any sort of example from the Bible, it's that the way to peace is peace. Remember that in the first century, again, people are looking for a military power to overthrow Rome, to overthrow all these things, to make about some kind of peace. And what you have is this expectation of a mighty warrior, God's mighty warrior who would show up. And in fact, in the time in which Jesus shows up, there's a decree that says, kill all the babies under two, all the male kids who are, who are under two, so that we might make sure there's no one who can, you know, power up over me, says this nervous king. And God sends a baby into a place where babies' lives are being threatened. Meaning that the pathway to peace isn't going to be powering up. In my own family, I have little kids, and my own family and my own sort of confession to you guys is, there are times, though it may not surprise you, there are times when I am not Mr. Rogers with my children. Kids, let's all gather around. We are using our outside voices inside our house. And we just can't do that. Oh, oh, excuse me. I'll wait till you find your voice. I mean, I just, I don't have that. Okay, I really try. I try for about 30 seconds. Hey, kids, kids, kids. And then I just go, kids, hey, knock it off. And they look at me like, oh, my gosh. And they feel me power up. And immediately what I think is what all of you do, if your neighbors know that you're someone who follows Jesus, you're like, oh, my gosh, are the windows closed? <laughs> Can my neighbors hear me screaming at my kids? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, someone needs to close the windows. <laughs> More truth than that than I thought. Because I know what happens when I power up. I can power, I can be big dad and, you know, power up over my kids. I know what that's like. I know the inclination to want that. And yet the Bible tends to paint a picture in which peace 
is made through peace. God enters the world at Christmas in the shadow of a Roman power with a ruler who's been set out to kill all babies, and he comes as a baby, small and weak and vulnerable. And now there's a lot to this. I don't have, this is a whole other talk. I just want to give you just a little, a little snapshot. When people have wounded us, I do not want you to hear me saying what they did was okay. I do not want you to hear me say that it doesn't matter and that we should just move on. That's more perseverance. But it's that maybe in some ways we consider what it might be like to try to be either passive-aggressive or hold resentment towards people who have wounded us, or to literally power up and get bigger than those people who have wounded us, maybe we take a page out of the picture of Jesus who says, I give to you peace as a baby to make you whole, to take on everything that you might have wholeness. In which, other words, to say is this. Maybe there's a part of us that needs not to excuse behavior, but to look beyond blame, to look beyond trying to solve problems through power or through some manipulation, that we might actually try to figure out what it might look like to be people who restore. I don't have time to go into more than that. But what might, what might that look like? I realize that's messy. Lastly is this. To look at the world, there's a part of us that goes, my gosh, if Jesus came to bring peace, did his mission fail? <laughs> I mean, really, we... It seems like every two weeks now there's like something going on where we're like, what, is, what literally is the deal with the world? God initiated a peace that could never be brought by ourselves in the person of Jesus, and yet that work is not yet finished. His intention is to bring the whole world to himself. And that work is not yet finished. In that sense, we are exactly the same as the people of the first century awaiting the arrival of Jesus. Now, Christians believe something. For those of you guys who are new, church. Christians believe something that's incredibly bizarre. So brace yourselves for this bizarre belief Christians have. It's that Jesus will come again someday. When he comes again, the fulfillment of all of this peace will be between God and his people, between people and people and all of creation. That work has begun, but is not yet finished. Jesus tells us this. As his disciples gather and he says, hey, look, I want to give you a picture of me, of what I have been and what is to come. And he, it's this thing called communion or the Last Supper. And he explains it to, the, to his disciples. Paul will explain it to the church like this. Oops, there's something else I skipped. Paul also said that. <laughs> I don't have it in my notes. Okay, well, um, we'll talk about that for a second. The peace that you want for your life should come from your own heart, said differently and let the shalom which comes from the Messiah be your heart's decision maker. I skip that and look it up. Okay. Paul will say it this way to the early church. The Lord Jesus on the night he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is what we do when we celebrate communion, which we're going to do in a little bit. In the same way after supper, he took the cup saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, this is what we sometimes forget about when we take communion. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, meaning he's going to return. What's wrapped up in communion is the picture of God has delivered to us a, a right standing with him. He has given us a peace with him. And that peace has begun in us, which means it can begin in the world and will ultimately be fulfilled when he comes again. That's communion. It's an affirmation of what God has done and what God will do or will fulfill ultimately. Guys, there is a brokenness within us and it's within the world. 
the way in which we are restored to wholeness, the way in which we are restored to shalom, the way in which we are restored to peace is only through Jesus. That's why we talk about peace at Advent. Let's pray together and then we'll talk about communion. Jesus, you have met us here. Many of us have dragged ourselves here afraid, fearful, lonely, scared. We're looking at what's coming up at Christmas and we don't have anticipation. We have fear. We have anxiety. Jesus, for, so many, for some people in this room, the only thing they needed to hear was that they were worth it. Father, might that be more real to them than ever as we celebrate and receive communion. We were worth it. Father, there are some people in here who have understood you to be a God who demands perfection from people, which essentially is inviting hypocrisy. Instead, Father, you say, because we cannot do it, you would give us yourself. Jesus, as we take communion, while we have the understanding of your great sacrifice that we were worth it and that you are intending to finish the work you started, Jesus, some of us need to come forward during that time of communion and just receive prayer from the prayer team to be reminded once again that we were worth it. We feel a sense of unworthiness maybe perhaps, but that there is also a great sense of you, God, who wants to help us to understand the great love you have for us. Father, we receive these gifts from you. Would you, hear our, would you tune our hearts to you? Might, might, peace be the one that, might peace be the way our decisions are made. In your name, Father, amen. Now here's the instructions for communion. There'll be some stations up in front. Some folks will be up there to help. Are there, I don't see folks up there. Am I, are we, doing, we have people coming? They're coming? Okay. I got, I got nervous that so we were going to have self-serve. <laughs> <clears throat> but it is full service communion. <laughs> and what, what will happen is this. Simply someone will hand you a piece of bread and they'll say, this is the body of Christ given for you. In which you, you're like always not sure what's supposed to say there. Just you can affirm it in the biblical way that the Bible says yes, which is the word amen. It just means it's true. And so then you'll, they'll, you'll take the bread and you dip it into the cup. And they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for the forgiveness of your sins or something to that effect. And you just simply say, amen. You can hold it if you want. You can take it back to your seat if you want. You can eat it right then in that moment. If you want to eat it and then go over to the prayer table and write something for the, to be placed in the prayer wall, you can do that as well. This time is for you to remember that you were worth it. That God's intention for you is to bring about a peace that you could not bring, bring for yourself and to anticipate a future in which he will return again. So let's stand together. And let's receive communion. See
Joy. 